Every career is a journey. Every leader has a story. Welcome to Journey to the Energy C-Suite, where we look at the strategies and techniques that turn solid leaders into top executives. This is your place to hear practical wisdom and guidance from real people who know what it takes. With your host, Ryan Sanford. Hey again, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Journey to the Energy C-Suite brought to you by the Oil & Gas Global Network and our great partners at the Price College of Business EMBA program in energy at the University of Oklahoma. If you are interested in advancing your career in energy, check them out. There is a link in the show notes where you can learn all about the great programs that they have going on at OU and the Price College. Also, thank you for pressing play again. And if you could, if you've liked what you've heard so far, we would love it if you could go on Apple Podcasts or wherever you access the show leave us a review. That's really, really helpful for us. It helps get the word out and make us more visible to lots of other folks. And we do appreciate those of you who have left a review so far. It is very much appreciated. So we have a great show today. I've got a guest that I'm really excited to bring on here in just a second. He has held various leadership roles at New Star Energy over a, a nine-year career there. He joined Phillips 66 in 2012, and he is currently the president of P66 Pipeline and the Vice President of Midstream Operations for P66. He is Todd Denton. Todd, thanks so much for joining us today. How are you? Very good. I'm honored to be here. Thanks for inviting me on. Well, absolutely. Thank you for giving us the time. And first of all, congratulations are in order because you guys have won some fantastic awards in, in safety recently. I think the API Distinguished Pipeline Safety Award in the large operator category and the GPA Midstream Association Awards for No Lost Time Accidents. Well done. First of all, congrats on that. And I know a lot goes into achieving those kinds of awards, you know, risk modeling and HSE management systems, all that sort of thing. But I really am interested to hear from you about what it takes to build a culture that really does value the safety of its people in the communities that it operates in. Sure. Thanks for the question. You know, that API Pipeline Distinguished Operator Award I have to be honest, I've been trying to win that award for a long time. <laughs> and my wife made fun of me when we took the picture earlier this year after we got the award. She said, I'm, I'm really surprised you didn't strike the Heisman pose. <laughs> and, and of course, you know, when you talk about safety, you never want to say your journey is done, right? And, and so it's, it's always a journey and we're only partway through that. But it was nice to get that recognition after several years of were, and I'll go back to your question about the culture side of things, because I, I do think that that is a big part of it. And, and I'll say, first of all, it does take time. It doesn't happen overnight. I think, you know, you can do you can get results quickly with command and control, but it's not it's not sustainable. And so I had the opportunity to come in here right at the at the time of the Phillips 66 Conoco Phillips split. And it was an interesting time, but it, it allowed me the opportunity to start establishing an environment of trust. And, and to me, that's the first thing that you have to do. And, you know, I like to say it's not unlike raising good kids. And I look to my wife for that, you know, and, and she says it's, it's about equal parts love and discipline, right? And so you do have to have that, that discipline piece of things. You have to have accountability within the organization, but the organization has to understand the why behind it. And then when you do have success, you have to celebrate it. And then second, I think this is this is something everyone knows is important, but I find it interesting how often hiring managers or even organizations really get it wrong. And, and it's, it's about hiring right. And I'm not talking necessarily about hiring the right skills or the right knowledge. The first thing you have to get right is the values and character of the people that you're hiring. 
And so that's something that I've stressed with the organization for years. And I think one thing that we often underestimate is how, even if you have an outstanding retention rate, how quickly your population turns over. You know, you can look back five years and I would challenge leaders to do that, pull their data from five years and see how many people in the organization have less than five years of service. My guess is it's going to be somewhere between 25 and 40 percent. And so within five years, you have that opportunity to influence that percentage of your organization that much. So why not take the opportunity to spend a lot of time on it? And we do. So we, we really look first at those, the character, the values. Do they match up with our organization? Do they fit our culture? Okay, then let's talk about skills and knowledge. That's secondary. We can always train for that as well. So, you know, it, it's really about, again, about trust and, and really about hiring right as well. Yeah. And we're talking about culture and even beyond the safety aspects that we focused on already. I mean, you, you joined P66 at a time where the culture needed to be changed overall. And, and you know, we know that that is not something you can do overnight. There's not, not a magic switch you can flip to do that. It does take time. So walk us through that. How did you identify kind of the specific aspects of the culture that needed to be changed? And then what did you do to go about enacting those changes over a period of years to really improve the culture overall at, at P66? Sure. You know, and I, th- I think it's interesting because as, as I was thinking about really my career and, and various aspects of it, I've been fortunate or blessed to have good timing in a lot of cases. And Phillips was one of those because, as I mentioned, I started right at as Phillips 66 and ConocoPhillips split. And ConocoPhillips had a different culture. And when they split, they each started with new CEOs that brought their own new cultures to those organizations. And so that was, I certainly don't want to take credit for all of it because I, it certainly had a lot to do with Greg Garland coming in as CEO of Phillips 66. And I felt like my style and my culture matched what he was looking for. But when I looked at what we called the transportation group at the time and the group that I came into, and I had some familiarity with it, it was really a very much a, they'd gone through a period of a lot of command and control. And and essentially we called it a culture of fear. And that's kind of how it was. And frankly, in reality, there had to be some of that just because say five years prior to that, their performance was was really, really poor. And, you know, I look at like 2010 data, you know, a couple of years before I started, ConocoPhillips transportation was not the, and, you know, this data is public data. If you pull up FEMSA data, we weren't one of the worst performers. We were really the worst performer in the industry when it came to spills and safety. And, and so, you know, and it benefited me that someone else came in before me and really put a lot of good measures in place. But again, that's not sustainable to take it to the next level, right? And so I felt like I stepped into a good opportunity, started building you know, those things I just talked about, that trust, hiring right, and knowing that it would take years, just really being patient. And fortunately, that's paid off. And, and I, I think we've, we've seen some good results. You know, and then it's also about making sure you got the right leaders throughout your organization. And been fortunate in that regard that we've had some really, really good people in, in our organization and we've been able to develop them. And that's obviously helped with our culture as well. I know that the two big things that you you focus on every year and, and you're responsible for, for a pretty large organization, I think over 1,400 folks in your group are people and strategy. Let's let's stay on the people theme now since we, we, we started to touch on that. How has your approach to leading the people side of the business really evolved since you've been there? 
and what are your business your your biggest obstacles currently right now on the people side? Good question. Yeah, you know, I'd say my philosophy on people hasn't changed, but it has evolved since I've been here. Really, by growth, you know, we've invested significantly in the midstream side of the business since 2012. We've acquired assets, built a very large NGL fractionation and LPG export hub. And we just finished construction on the largest pipeline project in our company's history and started that up in the middle of last year. So as we grew, we would staff those new assets or those acquired assets with folks that we knew and trusted throughout our organization that were willing to relocate or, or go take on those assets with a combination of, of new employees as well. And then backfilling those, you know, that the ones that have moved with new employees, again, hiring the right people that fit our culture. But then, you know, another significant focus was really on finding the right leaders. And, and that was, to me, that was a little bit of an evolution for me. And it was, you know, drawing on some experience that I'd, I'd had in the past and and really finding the folks within the organization. And I say I, it, it was, that's the collective I. It was really with the help of HR and other leaders. And we were able to develop the right people and get those on into our leadership team. And so I look at, I have eight direct reports today that I have been able to place in the positions that I want them in. And I, you know, have tremendous trust in that team. And I would just say, don't tell anyone, but you know, I could walk out the door today and the business wouldn't skip a beat <laughs> that leadership team. So that's probably one of the things I'm most proud of is, is building that leadership team that is running the organization. And then as far as obstacles, you know, first I'll say that I think the company, and, and I give Greg Garland credit for this, made the right decision last year and, and we brought everyone back into the office in June. And, you know, it wasn't easy and some were not happy about it and there was some noise, but we talked a lot about how managing risk is what we do every day. And that's what the COVID situation was about. We put a lot of protocols in place. We say we're, we're good at following rules and we put some rules in place. And it was interesting because within you know a few weeks or months, it just became routine and, and people adjusted to it. And so you know, I hear organizations and, and leaders today talking about and stressing about bringing their folks back into the office and how are they going to do that? And we've crossed that bridge a long time ago, you know, and again, it feels a lot more back to normal, you know, but probably the biggest obstacle has been managing through a crisis that really rocked our industry, you know, from the standpoint of demand. And as hard as you try when the company is losing money and, you know, last year, a lot of money, it's difficult to keep that morale high and keep people motivated. So, you know, we just try to look forward. And another thing that we did well was we managed our costs and our spending very well. And we managed through it without a layoff. And I think our employees truly, sincerely appreciated that because obviously a lot of companies did not do that. They were, there were a lot of layoffs throughout the industry. And so now you see the economy picking back up. And it's nice to see that the demand coming back, the volume coming back in our, on our assets. And you're starting to see that spring in people's step again, you know, and, and that morale is coming back. So you can definitely sense that optimism. And, you know, now we're back to hiring strong again, right? I mean, we were talking today about needing some more engineers, needing some more project people. And just, you know, with everything going on, it's, that's, that's a great situation to be in. But it's been an interesting year, no doubt, right? It's quite amazing that you all made it through last year without having to lay anyone off. I think the estimates that I've seen are anywhere between 25 and 30% of the industry as a whole 
was impacted last year with with layoffs or furloughs, which is a huge mm-hmm. number. Certainly the pandemic added to that. But as you said, the d- demand issue is probably the bigger driver. Clearly, that was a key strategic point for you guys to, to not have to do that. And you try to pull every lever you could to avoid that. I wonder if you could take us into the boardroom a little bit and, and how you guys decided to do that. I know what wasn't an easy choice because the easy thing when you're trying to control costs would be to cut headcount. Right. No, you're right. And but again, we've 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 always talked about how you know people are our greatest asset, and that's where we want to start. So we wanted that to be the last resort. So we started with we we had a lot of uh, projects in flight. We wanted to continue those that were especially nearing towards the end. You know, it didn't make sense to shut those down. But projects that were early on, we we cut a lot of capital, we cut a lot of spend on those projects. And then, you know, we, on the operating expense side, we went after what we could, you know, without, obviously we wanted to maintain our operations, excellence, safety, anything related to that. But if there was maintenance or there were other activities that could be deferred, then we did what we could and it worked out, you know, and and in midstream, you know, even with the tremendous loss in volume that we had because of demand drop, we didn't miss our cash flow budget by too far. We were actually... We did pretty well because we were we were able to cut those costs, and again we were able to maintain our headcount. Now we didn't we froze a lot of positions, right? If we had open positions, and if someone left, we would challenge if we really needed to refill that, and so we saved a little bit that way. But we did not again lay them off, and then now we're starting to fill those positions back again, right? And that's that's where we're trying to catch up. Yeah, that's great to hear. Certainly in Houston, we love to hear that new positions are open. Lots of folks trying to get back to work. Now, the, the other big piece that you're always focused on is strategy. I want to talk about that for a little bit. Always interested to hear kind of the way you navigate around balancing the short term versus the long term when it comes to strategy. And, and also, you're a part of a larger organization where you're not doing this in a vacuum. You're a part of a team of, of lots of other leaders that are involved in that process. You know, Help us understand what that looks like for you. Yeah, I think it's easy to get caught up in the short term, you know, managing that every day versus the the long term. And and that's always been a challenge of mine because, you know, and I think everyone, you, you always tend to work on what's urgent rather than what's important. And but again, I go back to building that leadership team and, you know, getting the right people in place has really helped me, you know, be able to focus more on the long term. So I can push a lot of that short term and, and not have to worry about that to my team. And so then that allows me to work with, you know, the various individuals. And you're right, our company is large. We have different people working on strategies. So, you know, I work with my counterpart that does midstream commercial and business development. We've got a midstream strategy group, and then you've got a corporate strategy group, various other groups, commercial and marketing throughout the company that, and then refining as well. And just looking for those opportunities and we call it general interest. We call it working for the greater good. And that's, we try to work together to find those, we, you know, we don't want our business units to be in a silo. We're looking for those opportunities across the business, the value chain, and how can we help each other? And so to me, that's, that's where I feel like, you know, the leaders can bring the best value is working on those things together. Yeah. I want to now kind of switch gears and think about your own career. And we talked about this a little bit when we, we talked a couple of weeks ago, but I just kind of rewind back to the beginning of your career in the industry. And, you know, we look backwards, it's always with hindsight easier to see kind of how each of the experiences we had kind of build on each other. And the idea of having this linear 
completely planned out career path now is really, really a falsehood like that. That just doesn't exist anymore. So I'd love to hear your perspective on kind of this, the idea of being agile when you're thinking about your career, being open to new opportunities. And especially when you think about aspiring leaders, maybe younger leaders that you're responsible for, how do you advise them to think about their careers now? Sure. Yeah, you're right. If someone had told me, hey, this is what your career is going to look like, you know, right after I graduated college, I would have said, yeah, right. Sure. (laughs) Planning your career out to a T, you know, just really isn't possible, right? And probably not even the best idea, but I I got two really good pieces of advice in college. And, you know, one was from a professor that was actually teaching an elective class that I was, it was kind of a, kind of a blow off class, honestly, in, in my senior year. And he said, you know, if you really, his advice was to specialize in something. And he said, anything, doesn't matter what it is, get really good at it. And that will get you noticed. And that was good advice for me because I'm not a natural extrovert. You know, I'm not going to get noticed, you know, just by being around. Right. And so for me, I was, again, fortunate with timing. When I came into the industry, we were, I was an electrical engineer coming out of school and we were transitioning, you know, from a lot of, you know, relay based logic control systems to automation, right? Programmable logic controllers, SCADA systems, that kind of thing. So that became my bread and butter, you know, and I kind of became the, you know, quote automation guy at Diamond Shamrock at the time. And, you know, to, as he said, that got me noticed. And then the other piece of advice that came from the dean of the electrical engineering school. And in class one day, he was just kind of talking philosophically. And he, and he said, you know, you should recognize in your careers that the best engineers don't necessarily make the best managers. And I'd never or the best leaders. And I'd never thought about that, but because they require very different skill sets, right? But he was absolutely right. And so I always kept that in mind as I transitioned from, you know, an individual contributor doing projects or whatever into supervision, because it, it does take different skill sets and you, and you have to spend, you know, more, people are much more complex than projects and you can't you know, micromanage. You can't get into the details as much, especially as your organizations get larger And so that was a big learning for me. Then, you know, when I talk about, I guess the last thing I would say is advice wise would be to stay flexible. Just like I was talking about earlier, it's really hard to plan a career. I think it's smart to try to think about what you want, what you want to do, where you want to go and to work with your managers and leaders on that. But at the same time, be flexible. And when those opportunities arise, you know, be willing to take those opportunities. You just talked about making that shift from individual contributor engineer to to leading people. And of course, you've now moved on to leading businesses in your career. Help us understand what, what were a couple of those you know, earlier seminal career development experiences that really helped develop your leadership style? Great question. And I think about that a lot. And, and there's two that really stand out in my career. The first was when I worked at Ultramar Diamond Shamrock. And Valero acquired Ultramar Diamond Shamrock. And of course, as they came in, they made some managerial changes. And one of my senior managers who had actually hired me, he was a great friend of mine and had worked with him for probably 11 years at the time. And he was one of the ones that, that got let go. He's one of the changes, you know, that, that was made in the management changes. And I remember talking to him afterwards and, and he said, you know, big lesson learned for me. I've always focused internally and not externally. And, and I don't have good network connections outside of the company. And by the way, he landed on his feet very well. He's an executive for another company now. 
and actually probably close to retirement. But that proved to be really good for me because what I did once I got into operations was I got involved in industry leadership. So Association of Oil Pipelines, API. And so today I'm on the board of AOPL. I'm the chair of the Pipeline Safety Excellence Safety Steering Committee with API and spend a lot of time with leaders in in the industry. And what that's done for me is helped me in my career because I understand the industry better. I know the people in the industry. And to me, that was really a propellant for my career. The second one was a little more personal in a way, and, and it was it was a career change. I'd always been in engineering. I'd always been in projects, and I'd worked about 15 years doing that. And at the time, I thought, this is what I'm going to do. This is my career path, is I'm going to stay technical. I love projects, and I want to continue on that path. So the VP of operations came into my office one day, and it was, it was like one o'clock in the afternoon. It was one of the most bizarre days, and you'll see why in a minute. And he said, you know, I'd like you to think about operations and we have a region manager position open in Texas City. And, you know, I think he could tell by my response, I really wasn't too interested. I didn't know those assets that well, you know, just wasn't where I wanted to go. And he, he did say something else important at that point. He said, you need to get out of your comfort zone. And that was good advice for later. But I said, well, let me think about it. But I, I knew he could tell, you know, my answer was probably going to be no. So I'm sitting in my office and literally an hour later, my wife calls and she said, I just got a call from one of our good friends. And this was someone that I went to high school with and he had married someone that my wife knew. We all went to college together. We'd known each other for years and his wife had passed away and she was 41 years old. It was, you know, just a complications from minor surgery and, and just a total shock. Right. And so I'm, I'm literally sitting in my office going, what just happened. And I thought, you know, I should just go home. I'm, I'm not really worth anything now. And the VP of operations walked back into my office. So all this happens within a couple of hours. And he said, okay, I got another op- opportunity for you. How about the region manager job in Corpus Christi? You know, and at this point, my head's just spinning, right? And, you know, I just learned a really good friend had passed away. And I said to him, you know what? Life's short. Sure. Let's do it. And he said, great. And, you know, went home and just said, hey, we're going to Corpus Christi. (laughs) And my wife's like, what? And but there was another thing that came out of that that I learned. And that is sometimes you have to trust your instincts and your gut. And as engineers, especially, we tend to overanalyze everything. And that was the best move I ever made. It really was. I went from leading a group of 20 to one of 140 or so. And but I've been in operations ever since and, you know, never looked back. It's been it's been a really good time. But, you know, I, whether that was divine intervention or what, that was an interesting day. It really was. And I definitely changed the course of my career. I want to shift gears a little bit here because this is a topic I've been talking about with a lot of our guests. But there is such a huge focus right now across the industry and in all parts of the industry around sustainability and environmental responsibility, all the ESG initiatives. And I love your perspective on this. And when you're thinking about aspiring senior leaders in the in- energy sector, you know, how important is it for them now to develop a well-rounded understanding of the ESG issues and developing those skills to be able to communicate both internally and externally around those issues to stakeholders? Great question. You, and you said the key word, and that's communication. 
as well as education, learning, learning about it. And I'll give you, so I'll give you a great example that happened to me just last week. We have interns every year. I think we have about 140 or so across the company. And we have a great intern program. And every, every week they have lunch and learns and, and they'll have a leader from, you know, a business unit come in and present to them during lunch. So I got to do that last week and talk to them about midstream. And of course, midstream is, you know, if you think about the ESG space, we're a big target. We're a big, you know, in the news a lot. Think about Keystone, the code access pipeline, Enbridge line three, line five. Obviously, there's a lot going on in that space. And so I gave them about a 35 minute presentation about midstream, what, what it's about, what we do, what our business looks like. You know, I probably had, I probably spent about five minutes of that on the ESG space and, you know, some of the challenges that we face and some of the things that we're doing and then open it up for Q&A for 25 minutes. I bet 20 minutes of the 25 minutes was on that topic, right? And so they were really focused around what are we doing about it? What's industry doing about it? What's Philip 66 doing about it? Which was were great questions and we're doing a lot, but it it allowed me to pivot it a little bit and say, look, you know, we can do quite a bit, but it's really about advocacy and it's about you. And, you know, it's about you talking to your neighbor. It's about me talking to my sister-in-law who's, you know, very green and thinks we need to be out of business. You know, we all have those people in our lives that, that we can advocate to. And, you know, I think we have to think about, so as a leader, I think one thing that we're missing is, or maybe that we were, we're not thinking about enough, is who we should be communicating to. So I think about, you look at our workforce, our workforce at Phillips 66 is between 40 and 50% now, millennials and, and Gen Zs. And what are they thinking about? What are they talking about? Now, whether they're, you know, supportive or, you know, not, that, that's what they're talking about. And they're, now they're our consumer, right? They're, they're buying our products. They're out there. So those are the folks that they're thinking about it. You, we have to be talking about it. We have to be thinking about where we're going. We have to be thinking about that transition. And, you know, the last year has really accelerated that. And so, Within our company, we've established a group called Emerging Energy, and that's their, you know, charge is to go think about what's next. And it's amazing they 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 were stood up January first, and it's amazing how many ideas they have come up with in five and a half months, and and what they're working on and what the opportunities are. But but to your point, it really is about communication. We can't just ignore it. And we, we know, you know, within the industry, we're going to need all forms of, of energy. But like we like to say, our, our vision is providing energy and improving lives. It's not providing oil and gas. It's providing energy. And so it's, you know, we, there is going to be some transition. We don't know exactly what that looks like, but we need to be talking about it. And, and, and last thing I'll say on this, and I said this to the interns, is, you know, where we need to start with that conversation is that we have the same goals. So if you talk to the NGOs, you talk to the activists and you, and you get down far enough, what do they really want? And, and, it's, and it's about clean air, clean water, no pollution. Great. So do we, right? So let's talk about the solution because we like to think we have the solution, whether it's EVs or solar or wind, that may or may not be the only solution, right? And so I, I think that's where we need the engineers and scientists and people in the energy industry to come up with those solutions and 
and achieve those same goals that we all have. Yeah. Todd, it's been a fascinating conversation. We touched on a lot of different things. One last thing before we go, and you, you've already shared with us a lot of exciting things that are going on at P66. What are you most excited about for the remainder of this year and then going into 2022 at P66? So this year, you know, first I'm excited that we're we're on a good run, knock on wood, as far as operations excellence, you know, and I'm really proud of the organization for that. And then second, we're seeing, you know, again, as I mentioned earlier, we're seeing some of the business, the volumes come back, which is great to see it starting to feel a lot more normal. But, you know, probably what excites me now is that we are somewhat starting a new journey. If I look at the last nine years, it's really been all about midstream growth, crude pipelines, exports, NGL pipelines, fractionators, LPG exports. That's really been what we've focused on and they've been good investments for us. But now, as I just talked about, we're seeing a lot of rapid change, right? And so that Emerging Energy Group is coming up with those ideas. We're looking at repurposing assets within our organization into different things that, again, are maybe part of that energy transition and doing some things. You know, for example, we've announced converting a refinery in California to renewable diesel. So we'll be converting our assets tied to that refinery to renewable diesel terminals. So, you know, that's probably what excites me is it's a little bit of a new journey starting this year and going into 2022 will be, you know, building on top of that. So I think it's going to be an exciting future. It's it's a little bit unknown in some respects, but it, it's, you know, that's why we're here is to, to build that out and see where we can take it. Awesome. Todd, thank you so much for being with us today. This was a great conversation. We've had Todd Denton from Philip 66 joining us today. Todd, have a great day. We appreciate that. And hey, thank you everybody for listening again. And also thanks to our great partners at the Price College of Business at Oklahoma University and their EMBA program in energy. Again, check out the show notes if you'd like to learn more about their programs and stay tuned. Next week, we'll have another great show for you. Thanks everybody. See you soon. Hey everybody, it's Savannah from OGGN and here are the events on deck for June 2021. This month, we have six events, but if you'd like the full list, you can click the link in the show notes to sign up for our events newsletter. We send it out every month, and it includes more info about the events that I talk about here. We even include events that occurred two months ahead of time, so if you're interested in always staying in the loop about oil and gas events, make sure to check that out. This month, OGGN will be hosting two events. One is online and one is in person. For our online event, we're hosting a live stream titled Deal Value Creation, M&A, and ONG. This is going to be on June the 2nd. And for our in-person event, we're relaunching our happy hours. It's been far too long since we had a good happy hour, so I'm sure plenty of you will be excited to hear that our next happy hour will be at the Cannon in Houston, Texas on June 24th. At this event, you'll be able to meet some of OGGN's hosts and network with other oil and gas industry professionals, all while enjoying great food and drinks. We hope to see you there. Other than OGGN's events, we have two in-person and two online events. First up, we have our two in-person events, which are the Energy Capital Conference on June 2nd at the Omni Houston Hotel and the U.S. Police and Fire Championships from June 10th to the 21st. The Police and Fire Championships will be hosted in multiple locations, so make sure to check out our events newsletter for more information about that. Next, we have our two online events, the first being the Post-Industrial Summit Series. This event actually started on May 4th, but it'll be ending later this month on June 22nd, so there's still plenty to see. And our second online event is the Big Data Industry Summit from June 9th to 10th. If you have any questions about these events or any of our shows, make sure to reach out to me through my email in the show notes. That's all for June. I hope you guys have a great month and thanks for tuning in. Tune in next week for another enlightening episode of Journey to the Energy C-Suite, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. 
Learn more at OGGN.com. 